0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And I don't know about you, but I have a long list of books that I think I really should read or that I want to read. It was in this connection that I was particularly glad to learn about Blinkist. What Blinkist does is it takes thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and it distills them down to their most important elements so that you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes and you can do it on your phone or your portable device. I listen to Blinkist while I'm working at my computer, doing the kind of thing that really doesn't involve my brain. The Blinkist library is massive. It has 2,500 titles, and they're always adding new ones. There are a lot of classics. You know, for example, how to win friends and influence people. And there are also a lot of Amazon bestsellers on it. For example, there's a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving. I, I can't say this on the air, but it's a word that starts with F. And then there are a lot of history books, that I think that you, as listeners to new books in history, would be very interested in. For example, there's David Christian's, I'm a big David Christian fan, origin story, a big history of everything. Daniel Ellsberg, you know who Daniel Ellsberg is. He wrote a book called The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, which is fascinating. I listened to that on Blinkist. And then there are a lot of biographies. I really like listening to biographies on Blinkist. Alexander the Great by Philip Freeman. Genghis Khan by Jack Weatherford. Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for the NBN audience. If you go to Blinkist.com slash newbooks, you can start a free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash newbooks to start a free seven-day trial. You can cancel any time. Blinkist.com slash newbooks. And they will sign you up, and you can... Find out whether this is something that you would enjoy. I know that I enjoy it, and I highly recommend it to you. I hope you enjoyed the following interview.
1: Welcome to New Books in Politics, podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Sher. Today, we are talking about the new book, PR's Last War, Theodore Roosevelt's The Great War, and A Journey of Triumph and Tragedy, uh, the author has written or edited over three dozen books and is been known as the undisputed champion of chronicling American presidential campaigns. David Petruja, thanks so much for being on the show. Great to be on. So uh, one of your other notable books, 1920, The Year of the Six Presidents, that was uh, honored by Kirkus Reviews, as one of the best books of 2007. This book is sort of a prequel to that, because it, it leads right into uh, 1920. Were you thinking of it in those terms? No, but the story
2: seemed a logical one to tell. I was, you know, it's very hard to come up with these topics. <laughs> though It may seem like, oh, he just throws a dart and hits a presidential year, because I've done 1920 and 1932 and 1948 and 1960, and this is this centers around 1916 uh in terms of elections but it, but it goes much further than that because it it deals with Theodore Roosevelt world war 1 the battle for preparedness how he has to get back into the good graces of the republican party after blowing it straight to hell in 1912 and uh causing the election of Woodrow Wilson and how he wants to get into the war physically fight again as if it's it's 189 party like it's 1898 again at san juan hill and how his four sons go off and and he ends up paying the price uh for the war he gets his war and pays the price and that is that is the uh, tragedy in the uh sub uh, subtitle of the book
1: but it's interesting that you focus on his last years essentially from 1916 to 1920 because When Teddy Roosevelt gets talked about today, it's almost uniformly uh, idolization on the left for the uh, progressive vision that he had sketched out uh, uh, more beyond his presidency. I mean, there's the trust busting during his presidency, but he really went big in the campaign of 1912 uh, with sketching out his vision for a progressive future. Yeah, the square
2: deal turns into the new nationalism, which is a totally different thing than, than he's peddling when he's president.
1: Right, right. But his latter years are not Teddy Roosevelt, the progressive champion. Uh, it's Teddy Roosevelt uh, you know, to be a little charitable, the warmonger. Uh, and uh, it, it's almost like he is like the first neocon. Uh, criticizing Wilson for being a swish when it comes to uh, the Great War. Uh, why do you, so why did you focus on that period of his life, and why do you think that period of his life is not talked about as much?
2: I guess the answer is to the first part is the second part, which is I focused on it because it's not focused on very much. And I think that even people who have done full biographies of him and have had hundreds and hundreds of pages to work with, uh, and and a great luxury of even even multi volumes uh, are exhausted by them at that point, and their editors may be telling them to wrap it up, and save some trees. And this is you know not his most sterling era, his time period. He's flailing around. He's still a progressive. He's not moved to the right economically or in regard to the whole progressive agenda. But, you know, one of the things we we don't realize is that progressivism can be not the progressivism of today. His progressivism may be a very, as you say, a warmongering, aggressive, imperialist uh, progressivism. It's the progressive Woodrow Wilson who locks up Eugene V. Debs. So it's, it's a very different game there, and a lot of people who are admirers of him avert their eyes at this period because he is so much the warmonger, because he is not progressing artfully politically in that 1915, 1916, 1917 period where he is not he, – he wants to reunite the Republican and progressive parties – and he doesn't quite know how to do it. And it's it's vexing him. And he does it in many ways very artlessly. And he throws over his progressive supporters at the 1916 conventions because the Republicans and the progressives hold their conventions simultaneously in Chicago. They want to go forward. They want another TR third party run. Or at least they want to scare the hell out of the Republicans into forcing a TR Republican nomination. And he holds back from that. But he's dangling it the whole time, whole time, whole time, and holds back from that, sees the Republicans nominate Charles Evans Hughes, and walks away, runs away from his old supporters in the progressive party. And it's interesting to hear him say uh, the Republicans have all the crooks and we have all the cranks. He has a very cynical picture of who his supporters are. And when he does do that betrayal at the end of those conventions, you see a very poignant scene where his Heartfelt supporters, and it is a cult of personality, are 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 ripping their TR buttons off their lapels and just cursing him both under their breath and above their breath as, as a traitor to their, their principles. And he's done this – he's he's shifted before. He always talks about being a, a pussyfooter and a fellow who, who opposes a talking out of both sides of his mouth. But he, he's pretty good at that himself. He does that in 1916. He throws over his uh, they're not progressive, but there were his reformer followers in 1898 to get the Republican nomination for the governor of the state of New York. And I've been reading recently about this campaign in 1904, and he really runs away from being the trust buster that year. They've had a slight business panic in 1903. He's worried about getting the Republican nomination from the old guard worried about getting the campaign contributions from the fat cats. And he describes himself over and over again that year as the conservative, the conservative, the conservative. And I think he has either one or two trust busted that entire campaign year. So uh, it's very interesting to see the games he plays, even though he thumps his chest all the time and talks about being the the manly uh, straight talker. And everybody else is is some sort of weasel. He talks about Woodrow Wilson using weasel words all the time. But he's very weaselly himself when it suits his purpose.
1: I, I do want to dig into this, but just the way you characterize it, it I mean, John McCain, if I can bring it to modern day, you know, John McCain, when he first ran for president, would call himself a Teddy Roosevelt Republican. And he also had somewhat of a blend of very militaristic foreign policy and not as progressive as Teddy Roosevelt domestically, but he had elements,
2: but, but regulatory in regard to campaign finance, right?
1: right. Uh, and you know, McCain got criticized because uh, he also toggled back and forth between catering to the center left and catering to uh, the far right to the extent where some people at the end uh, you know, were complaining that he was getting all of these accolades for his maverick nature. They, they thought there was some artifice to it. I mean, uh, do, do you see, but are, are they really kind of two peas in the pod, uh, but McCann and Teddy Roosevelt in that respect?
2: Well, when you, when you set yourself away from your party or you determine you're going to set a center course, you find that that center keeps moving a lot and, you're either, uh, if you're successful, you're going to appeal to people on the left and the right. or oh, But if you're not, you're going to end up, uh, you know, you're going to end up like uh, the roadkill in the middle of the road, getting run over. Um, and Theodore Roosevelt gets, has his problems in that war year. But he comes back at the end of his life, at the end of his career, when war comes to America, and the nation which had said or sang, uh, I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier, in a year is singing over there, Uh, and the Yanks are coming. So the American mindset switches very quickly from isolationism, let's not get involved, to full-bore patriotism, and they look to him as as the man who had led the way into the war, into this crusade against the Hun, and also where he was right, is that the Wilson administration was not doing a good job in preparing the nation for war, or even preparing the nation to negotiate with Berlin, Berlin, uh, the Kaiser's Germany is always their war is always a very closely run thing. And they have a big swatch of European territory, even at armistice day, but they're starving. They're running out of ammunition and oil and manpower and all sorts of reserves. And all their moves are always so desperate. The invasion of Belgium is a desperate move. They're always having to fight on any number of fronts. And in 1917, They hope that they can, with Russia uh, coming out of the war, that they can knock Britain and France out of the war before America gets in, which is not a crazy gamble, because look at where our first combat casualties on the ground occur. It's like a year. It's a year after we declare war. We take a very long time to get up and going, and Berlin is counting on the fact that they can knock us out of the war or knock Britain and France out of the war before we get in and can, can do a meaningful reinforcement of the Western allies. Now, what they do is they resume unrestricted submarine warfare. That's their their gamble. They think they can starve Britain out of the war as they are being starved on, on their own home front. And this is what had teed off Theodore Roosevelt so much publicly in 1915. When the Lusitania gets sunk, he's on trial. He's a very litigious guy. And and in, in this case, he's being sued by the boss of the Republican Party in New York State, a guy named Bill Barnes. He's said that the Republicans are as corrupt as Tammany. Barnes sues. And TR is on trial. The ex-president of the United States is on trial in Syracuse, New York. And it's a great it's location, location, location. Uh, and so instead of being holed up on a hilltop in St- Sagamore Hill on Long Island, he's in the middle of a bunch of reporters to begin with. And he can unload on the Kaiser, unload on what he calls piracy on the high seas, on the murder of women and children, on a luxury passenger line the the death of american citizens on that ship and he declares war not so much on germany although he's ticked off at germany but on woodrow wilson and this this is this is the great battle which goes on from there on where he's he's attack 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 against woodrow wilson now getting back to this sort of pussyfooting by theodore roosevelt when the war comes in august 1914 he will write publicly that Germany had to do what it did. And big nations uh, can be justified in pushing small nations around if it suits their purposes and uh, provides for their survival. So he's, he's cool with that publicly, and he even says, well, you know, we have to sub- support the administration in this policy of neutrality, which is, that's August 1914, and then by May 1915, he's, he's thumping the war drums. It's very much akin to what wilson does with he kept us out of war in november 1916 and then he gets us into war in april 1917.
1: so now you you probably have a more uh harsh assessment of woodrow wilson than i do (laughs) Uh, but uh, in the first wilson term when wilson's not rushing into war with germany uh and teddy roosevelt is pushing wilson both to, to to get in uh and for more preparedness you know, eventually Wilson does get there. Uh, he has the preparedness argument with his uh, isolationist uh, Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan, uh, the great populist. Bryan, you know, eventually quits and then challenges Wilson, you know, on a, on a cross-country tour. And Wilson wins that argument. They do the preparedness. Uh, my question to you is: um, Who should get the lion's share of the credit for getting America on a war footing? Uh, is it Teddy Roosevelt for getting out there first and pounding Wilson in the press uh, in his own uh, op-eds, or is it Wilson for finally going toe-to-toe with Brian?
2: Wilson's administration is amazingly confused on this issue. He has a pacifist, Brian as Secretary of State, and Bryan is going to resign because he thinks Wilson is too warlike. Wilson has a very pro-preparedness, Lindley Garrison, Secretary of War, who resigns because he thinks Woodrow Wilson is not sufficiently for preparedness. And then he replaces Bryan with an interventionist Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, who is really, really very crazily, almost pro-British, And he replaces the warlike Secretary of War with another pacifist, Newton D. Baker. So try to chart that (laughs) uh, maneuvering by the Wilson administration. So Wilson bears a lot of blame for a lack of preparedness. But T.R., in terms of banging the drum for preparedness, yes, he gets... He gets a lot of the credit that way. But it is Wilson who has to eventually get everything into gear. And there is waste and uh, inefficiency when he does that. But it is remarkable that, that they go from an 83,000-man army when we get into the war in April 1917 to 3 million men under arms, at, at the at the armistice, they they really do uh, transform America from this place where we were drilling with broomsticks, having our recruits drill with broomsticks instead of rifles on Governors Island in New York Harbor, to having all these men under arms. That having been said, uh, you know we're flying French airplanes. We're not there. We're this proto. Uh, arsenal of democracy, which had been supplying the Allies with all sorts of, of raw materials, we're almost uh, a colonial extractive uh, economy in that way. Although we were supplying a lot of munitions, for example, to the British uh, and and to the French, the we are are not having the the tools to to get into the war as we should, and, and we are still prepared. So the answer to, as to who uh bears the or or should take the most credit is is a difficult one and the cheerleaders you know we there would uh, Winston Churchill he's a war leader but he's also a great propagandist for the war he's also a great cheerleader for the cause of freedom and that counts for a lot so i think we 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 kind of have to share the credit on that in your earlier comment about liking or not liking Woodrow Wilson, I've actually come to have more respect for Woodrow Wilson in doing this book. He's, for a guy who has a reputation for being so thin-skinned and prickly, the restraint which which he handles uh, Theodore Roosevelt's attacks, public attacks, is really quite remarkable. He knows uh, that a president should not always punch down on people, even though it's tough to see uh Theodore Roosevelt as being down from anyone but uh he knows that he's he's not going to get into a fight he's not going to get into uh into the gutter with that guy as Theodore Roosevelt or as uh Dwight Eisenhower said of Joe McCarthy uh he's going to just let TR's w- w- words uh land like like duds in front of him and he's just going to stare over TR's head very very calmly and and that works. TR in the nineteen sixteen election becomes one of the big issues. And a lot of the people who don't want to get into the war are going to say if you elect Charles Evans Hughes, it's going to be Theodore Roosevelt pulling the strings and we're going to have a war. And the American people do not particularly want to have a war at that point. And you know, peace and prosperity uh, that's a very tough ticket to beat. And that's one reason why the Republicans, and it's still a Republican country at that point in time, uh, cannot pull off a defeat of Woodrow Wilson, even though I'm they come very Patricia, close. Patricia,
1: author of TR's Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War and a Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. Uh, I, I want to ask you, why did Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson get off on such a, Uh, a bad foot uh, in the first place. The divide they have over uh, uh, foreign policy and national security, that happens in the middle of Wilson's first term uh, with the sinking of Lusitania and and deciding whether to go to to war or not. That wasn't the dominant issue in the 1912 campaign, which is focused on domestic policy. Teddy Roosevelt breaks with his handpicked successor, William Howard Taft, thinks Taft is being too conservative uh, and the progressive energy seems to be in the Democratic Party. Uh, why doesn't Roosevelt simply say, let's vote for the Democrats? Um, the Republican Party has gone astray. Why does he look at Wilson as an uh, insufficient uh, uh, flag carrier for the per- for the progressive movement? Well, actually, T.R. and Wilson
2: do get along at first. They meet as early as 1896 because they're both progressive uh, uh, or patrician reformers. They meet on a campaign platform in 1896 in Baltimore for municipal reform. And one of the amazing little factoids I found out was that when TR becomes president in uh, 1901, on the death of mckinley when he rushes to buffalo to take the oath of office one of the first people he sees is woodrow wilson who is then a professor at princeton and is coming back from a vacation in canada a tr has invited him to sagamore hill to albany he's when when wilson becomes president of princeton T.R. is thrilled by this. He writes to Grover Cleveland how happy he is about this and what a great fellow Wilson is. But then Wilson starts taking pot shots at T.R. in the press, okay, when he's still at Princeton. And T.R., he doesn't like uh, T.R.'s uh, trust-busting, doesn't like the way he's doing that. And T.R. eventually begins to notice this, and think that maybe Wilson isn't such a great guy. But T.R. is so focused on hating William Howard Taft in 1912, it distracts him for how much he dislikes Woodrow Wilson. And T.R., I think, really may believe he could pull it off in 1912. But in any case, he wants to punish the Republican Party, and he's but he's not about... To join the Democrats, he has this this Republican disdain. He's a party person. He and he has this disdain for the Democrats. These these you know crazy Southerners and William Jennings Bryan populists and Tammany crooks. He just doesn't like them. They don't pass the TR smell test. He's not about to endorse a Democrat. Now the real break that comes between TR and Wilson precedes World War One, and that involves Panama. And that was the crowning achievement of TR's presidency in his mind, the creation of the Panama Canal. And Wilson determines that we have done wrong by the Republic of Colombia in essentially stealing the canal zone. And so he proposes a treaty to in a sense, to further compensate Colombia and, in an essence, to apologize for what America, i.e. Theodore Roosevelt, has done. You can only imagine how T.R. reacts to that. He wants to testify in Congress against personally against his treaty and also when the, when the uh, canal is formally dedicated, the administration, the Wilson administration, does not... Uh, invite either William Howard Taft or Theodore Roosevelt to the ceremonies. So the animus, the great animus between the two, Wilson and Roosevelt, precedes uh World War One and goes to to Panama. It it does founder uh on um on foreign policy, but also there's there's the you might also say it's the tariff issue uh But it's it's not so much that because TR is he supports tariffs, but with great. Unenthusiasm, shall we say, Uh at one point he said, you know, I am an agnostic on economic affairs, so he, he doesn't quite feel as strong about that. But there is, you know, TR wants to regulate the trusts. It's he will determine who the good trusts are. And who the bad trusts are. And if you're a good trust, I, in many cases, his pals, you can just go on doing whatever you're doing. But Wilson actually wants to break them up. So they're both trust busters, but they have a different style in, into how they're going to do that. And TR even, even breaks with William Howard Taft on, on trust busting. And Taft was, was even more of a trust buster. He, he busted dozens of them far more in four years than Theodore Roosevelt did in near in, in seven plus.
1: So why does Roosevelt then conclude that Taft is being insufficiently progressive himself and cause this massive cleave in the Republican Party and trying to start a wholly new progressive party if Taft was actually following through on, on TR's legacy of trust busting? Well with the trust busting,
2: one of the things that that Taft does is to bring a a suit against United States steel. And one of the causes for that is the acquisition of, there's a Tennessee steel and coal company or iron and coal company by U.S. Steel, which Roosevelt had let through in 1907. So Roosevelt sees that as a slap on his policies in regard to, the U.S. Steel and, and Wall Street. There's that. There's the, of course, a conservation and the firing by Taft of Gifford Pinchot, the chief forester of the United States, and which which goes right against TR's conservation policies. And beyond that, or right off the bat, Taft had promised to retain Roosevelt's cabinet, and I think he retains like one guy. And so he he starts off by breaking a promise right away. Also, in regard to progressivism and the progressive agenda, which in many cases was was process-driven, you want initiatives, you want referendum, uh, you want a greater reliance on the primary system. You also have a question of the courts. The question of the courts seems to be always with us And if you're a conservative or progressive or a liberal, uh, your support for the courts, depending on whether your ox is being gored or not and what the composition of the courts are back in those days, the courts were highly conservative and the progressives and Theodore Roosevelt come around to the position that you've got to rein them in. You might want to have recalls of judges or recalls of, of their of their decisions. And William Howard Taft loved being a judge. He had been a judge. He wanted to be a Supreme Court judge. He wanted to be Chief Justice of the United States. He didn't particularly want to be President of the United States. So he loves the judiciary, and Roosevelt is questioning it. And when Roosevelt gives a speech in 1910 in Columbus, Ohio, really slamming the judiciary, that really tears it with Taft and with the old guard of the Republican Party. So there are a lot of lot of issues going going on
1: there. So to circle back to uh, get, to get us from nineteen twelve to nineteen sixteen, and you touched upon this at the, the beginning of our of our chat. You know, so Teddy Roosevelt, you know, goes right at the Republican Party in nineteen twelve, breaks it into, takes the progressive wings with him, uh, and creates a wholly new party. Uh, and Taft is then the standard bearer for the old guard and for the conservatives. Uh, how does, it's why and how does Teddy Roosevelt decide I need to abandon this huge progressive party that I built up out of nothing, <laughs> uh, and reunite the Republican party and, and in effect reunite it under a, uh, conservative auspices in, in, in the end, you know, Taft sort of wins the ideological argument and ensures that the Republican party is the conservative party for the next, next century. Um, what, what propels Teddy Roosevelt to do that?
2: Well, TTR as late as the fall of 1918 is, is giving a public speech in Maine saying he wants a an almost progressive, a radical party or, uh, to, uh, to be the Republican party. And so he, he really doesn't change on that. But what convinces him to go back to the Republicans are two things. One is midterms. The midterms of 1914 are horrible for the Republican Party or for the progressives they had had nine congressmen they end up with one they had had 20 new york state assemblymen they end up with one who was elected only with democratic support uh the the party collapses it's it's one of those things where you know most third parties are one man shows you know, Henry Wallace in forty-eight or George Wallace in sixty-eight or Ross Perot. And and who's running on the ticket, you know, the down ticket beside from them, like nobody's, if anybody. And with Roosevelt's case, he really has a lot of, of big name people running for governor or senator. And and particularly in nineteen fourteen, and they all tank. And not only do they just lose, they lose with pathetic, pathetic vote totals. Uh, And also in the primaries, the Republican primaries, the old guard has taken over. So he sees the handwriting on the wall there. And also he realizes, okay, we okay, we got to get the we got to get the band back together again. If we're going to beat this uh, Woodrow Wilson guy who I really, really, really hate.
1: So uh, to get us into uh, Wilson's second term and TR's last year's. uh, yeah, I think you mentioned earlier, Roosevelt wanted to fight himself uh, in the war, uh, and he is in his uh, late 50s at, at this point. Uh, why does he think, he's been battling with Wilson, Wilson finally uh, does go in uh, to the war. Uh, why does Roosevelt think that his, the best use of his platform is to actually go in the trenches and fight himself, and why doesn't Wilson take him up on that offer?
2: Well, he always wants to go fight. Um, he wanted America to go fight Britain in the 1890s and seize Canada. He wanted to go to war with Germany over Samoa in the 1890s. He, he spoke about how it wouldn't be such a bad thing if our eastern East Coast cities were bombarded, uh, if it would make Americans wise up in regard to the value of, of being a, a warlike people. And he, he, he talks to the Naval uh, War College in 1896, this incredibly bloodthirsty speech about how there is no glory in peacetime which can uh, equal the glory of war. And he goes off, of course, and fights in um, uh, Cuba against Spain. Uh, and he really thinks that a death in battle is the most glorious thing that can happen to you. It's the capstone of your entire existence. So there is this death wish about him, about wanting to go and fight. And he also feels that if you've argued for war, you know, you shouldn't just sit there and let other guys go and fight. So even though his war is not the war of 1914-1918, his war in Cuba is nothing like that. Uh, and even though he's an old guy, he is you know wanting to go and fight himself. Woodrow Wilson knows this guy is old, he's out of shape, he's from a different era of warfare and also that he's going to be seriously insubordinate uh he has been uh in uh, attacking. Uh, the Woodrow Wilson administration on federal property at a, at a training camp in Plattsburgh in 1915, uh, 1916, causing great controversy. He's, he's not a guy who takes orders well. He didn't even take orders well, uh, in the Navy department in, in the 1890s in the McKinley administration. He sort of, he jumps the gun in ordering Admiral Dewey to seize the, uh, Philippines. It's, it's, it's his initiative. And and not anyone else, which leads to, you know, uh, decades of, of American rule over the Philippines. But he is determined to get in. And really, what when Wilson turns him down, and that's a very interesting story, Roosevelt, even though he has his ups and downs in health and a lot of downs in the last year or so of his life, has gone off to catch devil rays, big manta rays. Uh, devil fish rather in florida at the time of our declaration of war and war is declared he's coming back up from florida he goes to the white house and knocks on the door unannounced to see wilson wilson and demand he get into the war wilson has left 10 minutes earlier for a for a meeting at i think the executive office building and and roosevelt just says the hell with it and goes up to new york comes back a week or two later again unannounced but wilson knows he's coming because you can't keep a secret in washington and they talk roosevelt thinks if anyone else had said what wilson says to me i think i'm going into the war but i don't trust wilson and he's right on that because Wilson has not given him a straight answer and is going to forcefully say, no, no, this guy is not going in. He is somewhat charmed. But again, weasel words. Uh, his secretary, Wilson's secretary, says, so what did you think of Theodore Roosevelt? He says, you know, he's such a charming big boy. I can I can see why his admirers think he's so charming. Now, he didn't say he didn't he didn't say he thought he was. He thought, Wilson thought that Roosevelt was so charming, but he could see how he charmed others. And Roosevelt had drawn up these amazing detailed plans of of these thousands of overage volunteers, people past draft age, who would not be affected by the draft, who would volunteer to fight in in his regiments. And he, he had figured out how many planes he would need and how many machine guns, and he was Planning on borrowing two horses from the New York City Police Department to to ride during in the war because he wanted some nice tame ones because he was having trouble at this point actually staying on a horse, uh, and, and but but all of this is turned down by Woodrow Wilson, but Theodore Roosevelt's four sons will go over to France and fight in his stead.
1: So what happens when at the end of the war? Uh, Wilson has Germany on the run, but doesn't you know, break its back. Uh, accepts uh, a, a truce offer and decides to push on for the League of Nations. Uh, I, I believe early on, Teddy Roosevelt had some inkling of being for a League of Nations, um, but he doesn't necessarily like the way Wilson wants to go about it. Correct? Yeah.
2: Again, again, Roosevelt inconsistency. One of the things he attacks brian and wilson for early on is for negotiating a whole bunch of arbitration treaties with foreign foreign powers and he regards these as worthless he had tried the same thing when he was in in office and didn't actually get them through congress now he had advocated something like a league of nations but what does that mean? Is it like an armed, another armed alliance? Um, when he is in the hospital in 1918, November, December 1918, in New York City, he meets with Henry Cabot Lodge for a couple of days. Because of the center for and M- L- was Wilson. That's right. Wilson. Who is the great, who is the great opponent of the league of nations. And these guys have known each other and really liked each other from the 1890s. Very few people like Henry Cabot Lodge. Very few people can personally stand him, but Theodore Roosevelt really, really likes him. And they are, they are plotting together in, in Roosevelt's hospital room to defeat the league of nations. He says for a guy, or Roosevelt says, um, and, and, and now he had said we should, you know, stand by, we should not stand by Belgium. Then we should stand by Belgium. And this was an outrage. And then in 1918, he's saying we shouldn't be part of any league, which is going to go to war to protect the Czechos from the Slovaks. Okay. So he's, he's all over the lot at this point, but he knows one thing. If Woodrow Wilson is for
1: something, he's against it. So uh, before we get to the end of the war, uh, one of Teddy Roosevelt's sons does die in battle. Uh, and as you, as you said, you know, Teddy thought that was the most honorable way to die. Uh, so how does he react when one of his sons actually fulfills that dream of his own?
2: Well, the, the four sons went over Ted Jr., Uh, who was wounded and gassed Uh, archie who was wounded very seriously kermit who goes and fights with the british army in mesopotamia he he meets lawrence of arabia along the way and the youngest son who is quentin who is uh when the war starts a 20 year old sophomore and harvard quentin really shouldn't be in the army uh shouldn't be in military service he has the bad eyesight of his father He's also uh, wrecked his back on an expedition to the Grand Canyon when a pack horse falls on top of him. Um, but he goes in to become an aviator. He's very mechanically inclined. He's probably the guy with the most promise of all the sons of carrying on TR's um, legacy and, and into politics and all that. But he, he loves aviation, becomes a, a pilot, and a pilot in World War I is almost akin to being a kamikaze pilot in World War II because the life expectancy, I've seen it rated uh, from when you go into the air either eight days or 11 days at the training camp where uh, Kermit was helping train pilots for a year in France, they were losing a, a pilot a week in training, not to the Germans, in in training. Uh, so it's a, it's a very dangerous thing. He dies on his second combat mission uh july 14th bastille day 1918 and how tr reacts is first of all with the old stiff upper lip uh quentin's mother and i are so proud he had these few weeks of of glory and his serving his country and all this and he he's you know he's he's still with the program the tr program But behind the scenes, his heart is broken. One of his son, his friend says that, you know, the boy went out of TR at that moment. And he is quite sad. And he writes to a woman, and I don't even know who this woman was, but who somehow had met uh, Quentin Roosevelt. And he says, it is a very terrible thing to pay the price of your son's death for a policy you have advocated and and so i think behind the facade not the facade of patriotism not the facade but the the screen of patriotism shall we say is 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 the heartbreak of a of a grieving father
1: now uh, i i want to end by talking about this this major controversy with your book um but f- which revolves around teddy's death uh and in the edmund morris a trilogy of Teddy Roosevelt every goes through the the medical records uh and and reexamining it through modern eyes and consult the the technical details he ends by saying that perhaps Teddy died of a broken heart because of uh the death of his son and uh what you say doesn't necessarily conflict with that uh but you raise a possibility uh that you uh, were partly informed by Edward Morris's notes. Right. But it was actually not Edward
2: Morris's book, right? It's in the book. But yes. But the, the, the notes I think are deposited at Harvard and, and you can you could you can read read them. Uh, they're not what was deposited wasn't all that extensive, uh, but there's also footnotes or the end notes where where this is referenced. And what we're referring to is morphine. Uh, I I was as I was wrapping up my book, I noticed uh, that a couple of TR's associates, business associates, big progressives in Chicago had committed suicide ultimately. And I thought, oh wait a minute, uh, Kermit didn't didn't Kermit commit suicide in 1943? A TR son? Yes, yes. Oh oh, and T, and Kermit, uh, TR in the Amazon had threatened when he was very sick had threatened to take morphine or had threatened to kill himself when uh when he got very sick and he was like you know leave me behind and i'm going to end it all and kermit says oh no no we're taking your your carcass out one way or the other and so it'll be a lot easier if you're ambulatory and and that snaps tr out of it and how is he going to do that By taking morphine, he carried a a vial uh, of of morphine with him, liquid, to take an overdose with him on uh, these little jaunts. So he always had suicide in mind if things got rough for him. And I thought, oh, suicide or morphine because he was injected with morphine that night. Now, he's very depressed. We talk about the death of his son. He's very, very sick. We've, we really haven't touched on that. But for the last year of his life, he's in the hospital for like two and a half months. He can't even sign his name at that point. It's after Christmas. It's it's the the family. The house has emptied out. He might have to spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair. Uh, uh, he is wracked with physical pain. Uh, It's so bad. And this is no joke that someone has stolen his dog, even though he's been when he was in the hospital. So things are not wonderful for him. And he has administered this morphine. And if there was to be an autopsy or some sort of question, morphine would be in his system, it would be explained that the morphine was uh, administered by a nurse on doctor's orders to help kill this incredible pain he was he was suffering. He was not able to see a lot of people he would have seen that day. He was in such a, such a bad shape. Did he take the rest of that morphine later and overdose from it? And the Morris notes, which draw on some advice uh, or or opinion from modern day physicians, say that the symptoms of his death, the, the breathing, the heavy breathing labored, is consistent not so much with... Uh, uh with the, the embolism which he was diagnosed with or uh as his death at the time but by a morphine overdose so the question is and if if you wish to come to the conclusion that tr committed suicide fine if you wish to oppose that fine if you wish to come to no conclusion fine i come to no conclusion but once i was sitting on all these facts and also this significant suicidal streak within the family i mean really big time and even a lot of the former rough riders the incidence of suicide was was quite high um you know i i felt it wrong to withhold this information, which came in such a great rush, and almost so easily at the very end of my writing the book, and if it causes people to recoil from the book, well, so be it, but I thought it unfair to the readers and to history um to withhold that information but but it also but at a minimum at a minimum, it really draws uh attention to the another side of Theodore Roosevelt, which is we see him as so manic and not, in a, not in a clinical sense, but in a sense of activity and being the energizer bunny of presidents and always on the go. And like, you know, maybe having no doubts about anything, but in fact he could get down about a lot of things, not just the death of a son or his wife or, or mother, which all of us could, but he he thought he was going to lose the 1904 election or thought he could, which he won in his great landslide. And people like Cabot Lodge and other intimates write in, in their memoirs or reminiscences, people thought he was always upbeat, and they say no. He was very sensitive to criticism, and he could get really, really down. And there were a lot of really down periods he had, in the period of this book, and certainly um, he had every reason to be down on things in the, in the time before his
1: death. And so when the book is published, you get contacted by the National Park Service, which uh, administers the Theodore Roosevelt birthplace uh, on East 20th Street in Manhattan,
2: yeah, I had contacted them about a possible speaking engagement.
1: And so they respond to you saying that uh, you can't speak there during business hours. You can rent the place after hours if you want, and we're not going to stock your book on the bookshelf because this insinuation that perhaps he had committed suicide uh, is uh, m- might offend the uh, the big donor, uh, the, Ro- the Roosevelt Memorial Association, and the Roosevelt family. Which is- well, I don't know if they're I don't know if they're
2: donors because it, it's a federal facility. But the they were afraid of. Well, the first thing they said was, "Well, no one has ever come out with this before." It's like so, <laughs> so <laughs> what? What is that? What's that got to do with anything? So- sorry, Mister Copernicus, we're we're not buying your theory. Um, but the which isn't even a theory; it's a presentation of fact. Um, and not, not the, the I mean,
1: you're, you're, you're stopping short sure of concluding it,
2: yeah, I, because I don't know. Right. I don't know. There's there's no uh, the the vial of morphine is empty, but after a hundred years, um, you know, <laughs> vials get empty. You know, stuff gets thrown out. You know, uh, but his medicine uh, chest or, or case, uh, which he had, uh, still exists at Sagamore Hill. But everything is is empty now so if it if it wasn't if the morphine was still there i'd say oh the hell with this you know it's like okay we're not adding this epilogue but uh, the fact that it still existed and was empty it's like well okay i guess we can still present this the um and also because it might offend the family and it might offend the theodore roosevelt association the theodore roosevelt Association. Uh, was an amalgam of uh, a couple of organizations which, the, which had donated the building to the National Park Service and, in fact, had built it because um, it's not the real building. Um, it, uh, the uh, admirers of Theodore Roosevelt had had a chance to buy it just before he died, and they said, eh, no. And then he died, and everyone said, damn, why didn't we do that? And, but at that point, it had been torn down so they had to reconstruct the whole building but in, in any case uh that was those were the three reasons that i was given and and then of course it's like you can't speak here during the day and it's like i know they have people speaking there during the day because i've attended something there and that oh you we or it was it was actually stronger that it was we can't keep you from it's like oh but you can apply for 50 bucks you can apply for 50 bucks to speak after hours and then rent the place for $80 an hour. Uh, and then in fact, I didn't even get that. And at that point I, I wrote a letter to them saying, um, you know, this is basically, censorship this is the book banning by an arm of the federal government and this is this is disturbing i mean i can you know it's nothing to be you know not stocked in some bookstore because they think it won't sell but for the federal government to or an arm of it to say we won't stock it because of what's in the book
1: is is book banning and i I just find very strange why i think we've gone past Treating suicide like a secret shame in our society. Um, I mean, your point that any government censorship is disturbing, regardless of the reason. But I find this very strange. That this is the reason why there's a resistance to the book.
2: Yes, um, or or to depression, which which I, well, a lot of scholars have acknowledged that he could be he could be prone to this. Um, and I had run the theory uh or or the theory or the information the epilogue passed a very close friend of mine who has attempted suicide twice to see if she would think this was offensive or off the wall or anything like that and she said no and she says i think you understand depression and 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 suicide and 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 the factors involved so I, I, th- and I, I, I think it's important because suicide is more prevalent than we think and even was back then. And we should be able to deal with it with ourselves and with our loved ones.
1: Well, the National Park Service can't stop you, dear listener, from buying TRs last war. Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War and a Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. David Petruzio, thanks so much for being on New Books in Politics. Thanks. Thanks for having me.